So 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verses 12 to 36. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year, his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli, who was, a, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with people. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice an offering that I prescribed from my, for my dwelling. Why do you honour your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members from your family would minister before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me, those who honour me I will honour. But those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house, so that no one in it will reach old age. 
and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be a sign to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, let's pray before we uh, think about God's word. Uh, dear, dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we come to you as people uh, deeply in need of your grace uh, in Christ Jesus. Lord, your rich and bountiful forgiveness uh, for all our sins. Lord, your strength and compassion, your mercy, uh, which always abounds. And uh, Lord, we pray that as we reflect on your words now, that uh, your Holy Spirit would speak uh, to us right into our hearts, that we might catch a uh, a wonderful glimpse of your glory and uh, your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, strengthen us, we pray, uh, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, uh, whether we like it or not, uh, all of us have to submit to someone or other who is an, in authority over us. You know, that might be our parents, it might be our teachers, it might be the policemen. Uh, or the government, uh, who, uh, our politicians, whoever it is, uh, there are people that we need to submit to who are in a position to lead us uh, and to make decisions to, to some degree on our behalf. Uh, and for the most part, that usually works okay. You know, we might be a little bit upset sometimes about some of the decisions that our politicians make. Uh, you might be upset from time to time about some of the things that your parents ask you to do. Uh, you might be upset sometimes about what the teacher makes you do at school. Uh, you might not like some of the decisions that the church leadership makes. Uh, sometimes, you know, we, we're mildly upset or unhappy with the kinds of decisions that people make on our behalf or the way that, that they're leading us. But sometimes as well, leadership is not just upsetting but it's absolutely corrupt. Uh, and the question is, what do we do in that situation? What do we do when leadership is corrupt? There's, there's nothing good in it. Uh, what's the answer to that? And that's really the problem at the heart of the passage that we're looking at today. The people of God had leaders, these priests, but they were absolutely uh, corrupt. Well, last time, uh, in contrast, in the first chapter of Samuel, we saw uh, the wonderful grace and compassion of God for Hannah, this godly woman. She's in distress, she's being harassed, uh, she's childless, and God uh, comes, he hears her prayer, and uh, she answers, he answers her prayer. But now, just almost a complete flip around, now we see this terrible situation, this desperate situation of corruption 
among uh, the leadership in God's people. Uh, the section begins with this terrible indictment of Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phineas. We're told that they're scoundrels because they had no regard for God. Uh, the, that word scoundrels actually sounds a bit uh, kind of a bit too kind in some ways. Uh, really, the, the word means something much like, more like evil. That's how evil uh, leaders of God's people. Uh, it's also what Hannah said back in chapter 1 to Eli when uh, he accused her. Uh, she said, look, don't think of me as a, as a worthless woman, uh, as, a, as a drunkard here, kind of, you know, making light of the temple. Uh, it turns out that while Hannah was not a worthless woman, uh, it turns out that while she was innocent, actually Eli's two sons are complete, uh, completely evil, servants of evil rather than servants of God. And we see that painted in a couple of ways in this chapter. Uh, so the first way that we see that is when we look at how they treated the offerings that people brought before God. So as priests, Hophni and Phinehas, they had this responsibility to bring the offerings, the sacrifices of the people before God. Uh, but instead of doing that here... They're actually stealing from the people who are bringing these sacrifices and they're stealing from God. So they were entitled by God to enjoy part of the sacrifices that people would bring. That was part of God's provision for them. Uh, they didn't farm the land. Um, they didn't uh, do those kinds of things. So how did they eat? Well, God had provided for them through uh, them enjoying part of the sacrifices that people would bring. They could eat that. Uh, in Leviticus 7, uh, God says that the priests were to receive the breast of the meat as well as the thighs. They were to have some of the best meat that was there. It was God's generous provision for them. But Hophni and Phineas aren't content with that provision. Uh, and so they devise this scheme, this plan, to take really whatever they want. Uh, they get one of their servants to go in, to stick a big fork in the pot of meat and just and, and to pull out whatever it is that they want to eat. Uh, that's not all. Not only are they stealing from the people some of what belonged to the people, uh, they are also stealing from God. Uh, even before the meat went into uh, into the pot, they would ask for some of the best parts of the meat, uh, the fat parts. Uh, in verse uh, 15, uh, they, we're told about that. And if people refused to give them that meat, then they would take it by force. Now again, uh, you need to know that the fat part of the meat was the, the part that was reserved for God. It was considered to be the best part. And in Leviticus 3, verse 16, it says this, All the fat is the Lord's. All of it. All of it belongs to God. Uh, not only uh, are these people stealing from their fellow citizens, they're stealing from God. And that's not all. That's the first thing, the way that they steal from God and from, from others. We're also told later in verse 22 that they would sleep with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. They're thieves and they're immoral. It's a really somber picture, I think, of the terrible state within uh, God's people in the times of uh, Eli and Samuel and Hannah. Uh, and although it's a, a really somber picture, I think it's helpful for us and important 
for us to stop and acknowledge that sometimes those things can happen in our day as well. Uh, It would be nice for us to believe that the kinds of things, the kind of corruption that we see in this chapter is relegated to a period in the Old Testament. Uh, It would be nice to believe that those things stopped and that the church today is always a wonderful place and that there's never any corruption in the leadership in God's people. But that's not true. We've seen that terribly in the last uh, few years with the Royal Commission into uh, sexual abuse in the church and in in Christian organisations as well as many other organisations. We've seen that there have been people whose lives have been destroyed by corrupt leaders, absolutely corrupt Christian leaders. Uh, So too, we sometimes hear of the stories of pastors and church, other church leaders using the churches for their own uh, ends, for their own advantage, to become rich, to build their own empire. People who, uh, who rob from their own congregation in order to feather their nest, to build enormous houses or buy expensive planes. We ought to be deeply grieved by that. We ought to be grieved when we see those kinds of things in the world We ought to be especially grieved when we see that kind of thing in the church. People who claim to have the name of Christ. We ought to be grieved by that, but we also ought to uh, pray that God would protect us from those things. Uh, That God would keep us from that kind of thing here as well. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, you know, we ought to pray that we, that we would be able to guard the gospel with the help of the Holy Spirit. We need God's help to guard the gospel. It won't just happen automatically. We need God's help. So we should pray that God would protect us, but it should also drive us back to God and drive us to put our hope in God. The truth is, as this chapter clearly reminds us, all Human leadership is frail human leadership. Even the best human leadership is frail. And often we can be tempted to put our hope in human leaders uh, as a solution to a, to a, a, a problem. To, you know, we hope that perhaps someone will come and sort out the problem for us. We can put our hope in new leaders. We can also put our hope in old leaders and think, well, they're the one who will get us through. Uh, but... The solution to frail human leadership is never more frail human leadership. The solution to frail human leadership is God. And that's really what Samuel is about. The the nation was in disarray because of the failed human leadership. We see that at the end of Judges that carries on into the book of Samuel. What we need is not better human leaders. What we need is the leadership of God. Uh, And that's the lesson that God wants to teach us and wanted to teach his people in uh, the book of Samuel. So the first thing this passage helps us to do is to acknowledge the difficulty and the challenge of corrupt human leadership and the need for our hope to be in God uh, as our true king. But the problem of this corrupt leadership runs deeper than that and the full significance of that problem only comes to light uh, a little further on when Eli speaks to his sons about their sin. 
Uh, Eli hears what his sons are doing. And in verse 22, he speaks to them and he warns them about that. Uh, he, he warns them to turn away from their sin. And in many ways, his response is actually pretty weak. You know, He hears that they're stealing from God. He hears that they're sleeping with the women who are serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he, you know, he responds in a very kind of a weak way. Uh, his sons don't really listen to him anyway. But Eli does get one thing right. Uh, even though he responds pretty weakly, he does get one thing right, and that's in verse 25. He says this, If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender, but if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? Eli says that if I sin against you or if you sin against me, there's a, there's a way to resolve that. You know, God has put in place uh, people who can help us to sort those things out. In the days of uh, Eli and, and Samuel, God had put in place judges. Or he put in place priests as well that had been appointed to be able to sort those issues out between people. Uh, we have similar things like that today. We have courts, we have law courts, we have tribunals uh, that deal with those kinds of things. Uh, if you have a dispute, uh, too, with your brother or your sister, uh, because, you know, they've hit you or, uh, you know, you've got upset with them or something like that, there's someone that you can go to. You can go to your parents, right? God has put in place people to resolve issues um, if you have a dispute with your your phone company because they've charged you too much uh, or if you have a dispute with them because they won't listen uh, because sorry they they think you haven't paid your bill then you can go to someone you can go there's a telecommunication ombudsman uh, and he will sort out your i help you to sort out your problem but the question is that's great between you and me, right? But what do we do if there's a problem between us and God? Who, who, who then can we turn to to sort that out? Who, who do we appeal to? And more to the point, in a dispute between two people, it might be an open question, who's at fault? You know, a brother and a sister come to their parents you know, there's been a fight, and often you'd probably think, well, there's probably a bit of blame on both sides. But in a dispute between us and God, there's only ever one party at fault. It's never God's fault. It's us. So who will sort it out? You and I don't have anything to offer to God to, to, to kind of help sort it out. And any kind of attempts that we might make are probably only liable to make it worse. What do we say? How do we make it better? And the answer is really that we can't. We can't hope for anything else in we can't hope for somebody else, some other human being, mere human, 
to whom we can appeal. We need someone to stand between us and God. Who will it be? Of course, it's tempting to think maybe, and you might think, that you don't really need any help. Maybe you think that there isn't actually really any any hostility between you and God. You think things are pretty okay. And so you think, well, actually, I don't need anyone to mediate between me and God. But the Bible says that isn't true. The Bible says there is a problem between us and God. We do need someone who can appeal to God on our behalf, who can mediate between us. Or maybe you realize the problem. Maybe you see that there's a problem between you and God. But you also think maybe, well, you know what, there's a problem, but, you know, it's sorted. I think it's sorted. Perhaps you think you can just try and paper over the cracks. You know, you've made some mistakes in your life, but, but that's okay. But do you really think that on the day of judgment, are you really absolutely confident that on that day you'll be able to stand before God and give a defense and say to the Lord God, you know what? I think it's okay. I think you're just getting a bit hot under the collar. The Bible says it won't work. Eli says it won't work. On the other hand, you might realize the enormity of the problem. You might feel the condemnation, recognize uh, the the, the situation you're in before God, the need for grace and the impossibility uh, to to, to plead that uh, on your behalf. You know that Eli's right. Who will mediate? And you feel uh, that you don't know what to do about it. Where do you go? And maybe you think somebody else can help you. Maybe you think uh, somebody else could be a kind of a spiritual advisor for you. They could put in a good word. And maybe you think that's uh, you know, a good Christian friend. Maybe you think that's a, a pastor. Maybe you think, oh, I could do that. That's what the Catholic Church teaches. It teaches that, you know, you can go to the priest and they'll put in a good word for you with God. Or you can go to a saint, you know, a really kind of special holy person who's died. Uh, You can go to them and they can put in a good word for you with God and that will make it better. But Eli says it won't work. I can't intercede for myself. How can I intercede for you? You can't intercede for yourself. How can you intercede for somebody else? And therein lies the problem. And it's a problem bigger than just Eli's sons. The problem in this chapter isn't just that they couldn't intercede for themselves. They'd sinned against God and there was nothing that they could do. The problem is, you see, they were supposed to be, they were supposed to be the ones representing God's people. When things went bad, when there was sin in the community, they were supposed to be the ones who were going to God on behalf of the people. And they can't even go to God on behalf of themselves. So at the end of chapter 26, we're left in this really troubling place. There's corrupt leadership in the, among God's people. They need a mediator. They need someone who can stand before God on their behalf. But the people that they have are utterly corrupt. What do they do? And in the last part of the chapter, God answers that question. And the answer that God gives is really extraordinary. 
A man of God comes to Eli and he tells him that he and his family will no longer be priests. He says, God's, God says that in response to this corrupt leadership, he says, actually, what's going to happen is the end of the priesthood. Uh, God says in verse 28 that after bringing the people up out of Egypt, he'd chosen Aaron. Aaron was the, the, the kind of the great-grandfather of all the priests in, in the Old Testament. And God had chosen not only Aaron, but all his descendants to serve before him. And God says, now that won't be. He says in verse 30, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. I promised they'd minister before me forever. But now, declares the Lord, far be it from me. It's not going to happen. Right from the very beginning of the Old Testament priesthood, in fact, there were signs that something was not quite right. If you go back to Leviticus uh, chapters nine and ten, uh, chapters eight and nine, sorry, uh, God uh, installs the priests for the first time, uh, and it's this wonderful ceremony. It's kind of the expect the fulfilment of all these uh, expectations. But on that very first day, tragedy strikes. Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, they decide that they've got some creative ideas for how they can worship God. Uh, and so they, they kind of go with what their heart desires and they offer this unauthorized fire before God and uh, fire comes out from the altar of God and destroys them. This is the very first day the institution of the Old Testament priesthood. And there's this great warning sign to say, you know what? This is not where it is. This is not what it's about. Right from the very first day, it was clear that something better was needed. And that something better, God now promises in verse 35. He says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. God promises that he will raise up a better priest, not from the house of Aaron. A better priest who will do all that's in God's heart and mind. Not someone who will you know, come up with their own ideas about how to serve God. But a person who will do all that's in God's heart, who will be able to stand before the people and be able to represent them before God. Uh, in this chapter and the next chapter, you might think that that priest is Samuel. He's the next person that seems to come up. And you go, oh, well, maybe, maybe Samuel's the one. But then it doesn't work out for Samuel. It doesn't work out for his kids either. And you think, oh, well, maybe Saul's the one who God is raising up to do this great work. It's not Saul. Uh, he loses the kingship because of his sin. He can't stand before the people to represent them. You think, well, maybe it's David. David, after all, is a man after God's own heart, a man who will do all that's in God's heart and mind. Maybe it's David who's this person who can stand before God and lead the people without corruption and appeal to God on their behalf. But he too falls into sin. He's removed 
from the kingship? The answer is not Samuel, the answer is not Saul, the answer is not David. But the answer, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, great David's greatest son. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament says this about Jesus. It says, such a priest, such a high priest, truly meets our need. What's our need? One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the highest heavens. Unlike the other priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints, says high priest, men in all their weakness, in all their sin. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus stands before God as the perfect priest, the perfect representative. And he defends us. He defends, he defends the indefensible. Because he not only speaks in our defense, but he's made a sacrifice in our defense as well to bring release and redemption and freedom from all that we've done against God. And he not only represents us, he not only stands before God in our place and says, you stand back over there. No, he stands before God and he gathers us in his arms. God promises here in 1 Samuel 2.35 that he will raise up not just a priest, but a family who will serve before God all the days. And Jesus, when he came, he came not only to represent us, but he came to embrace us and gather us and bring us together and bring us into the presence of God. So it's not just someone else standing before God on our behalf, but we can stand there and know the true and living God, know the life and the goodness and the love and the faithfulness of God himself. If you belong to Jesus, uh, then the good news is, if you belong to him by trusting in him, then the good news is that you're part of God's family. There is someone who can mediate for you. And the Lord Jesus Christ has gathered you up to be part of his people, part of the family of God. And you're heard by God, you're loved by God, you're kept by God. He walks with you today, he walks with you tomorrow, and he walks with you every day for all eternity. There's no enmity with God, there's no hostility, there's no doubt of his love, there's no doubt of his commitment. There's no prospect that he'll abandon you. There's no prospect that he'll condemn you. You belong to him. All of us are at odds with God, apart from Jesus. And no human leadership can make that right. But we have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who speaks in our defense who gathers us to himself and brings us to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, when we look around our world, we're so deeply grieved. 
Lord, grieved by our own sin, of course. Uh, Lord, grieved by our own selfishness and uh, sinful desires. Uh, And Lord, the havoc that we uh, have made of our lives sometimes and the lives of others. Uh, And Lord, when we look at the world around us too, we're desperate sometimes. We see no hope in our political leaders, uh, no hope in our government, Lord, no hope in our schools or uh, community organisations, whatever it is, Lord, no hope in the UN. And Lord, we wonder what the solution is and, and Lord, we can despair. Uh, and Lord, we can despair indeed of the fact that there's no way that we can deal with all the sin that we've committed against you. Lord, thank you that there is a way, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that he is a perfect high priest, one who meets our need, who's holy, blameless, set apart from sinners, who always lives to intercede for us. There's never a moment, Lord, when he's not on duty. There's never a moment when his pleas and prayers on our behalf are not adequate. There's never a moment when his strength is not sufficient. There's never a moment when his kindness is not kind enough to meet us in our despair. Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, we pray that in him you would forgive us all our sins, you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that you would enable us to know the full and wonderful joy that we have been gathered in his arms and we stand already now, the spirits of righteous men made perfect, gathered around the throne, your throne in heaven. And Lord, we pray that uh, we would know those realities uh, and know the wonderful grace uh, and love and the acceptance that comes uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that he would lead us and carry us uh, from this day until eternity. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.